Thank you, choir and instrumentalists. Uh, we had an unusual event happen in Texas. Part of the reason I went is because my mother wanted to dedicate the tombstone of my father. Eric, did we get that picture? I'm going to show you a picture of the family at the tombstone. My father wanted the top of his tombstone to say, Jesus saves. Now, that's a glimpse into the life of our family. Not only does the tombstone say Jesus saves, but my dad gave his testimony about Jesus saving him when he was 18 years old, over and over again at every family reunion. And uh, the 13 children that you saw there around the tombstone, that uh, is the legacy of my father and my mother. I am the second of those 13. And there are four pastors in that group of 13. There's a Baptist uh, college professor in that group. There are a couple of pastor's wives, and dad uh, so taught us the scripture and the truth that Jesus saves, that it was ingrained in our hearts, and we are people who believe Jesus saves. Amen? Now, we also had the distribution of the estate of Monty Conrad, Janet's aunt and her surrogate mother. Uh, very dear to us. And that was sad. I've never had to go through the remains of somebody that I love like I love Monty. And uh, as I was going through the possessions that she left, I thought to myself, as I aged, she was 92 when she died, what's important in my life? And do you know, Aunt Monty understood that friendships, relationships, and loving people was the main thing about living. So though we had to go through her possessions, we knew that her life did not consist of these things, these clothes, these kitchen utensils, these blankets and pillowcases and articles of furniture. Her life consisted of relationships that she had. And brothers and sisters, you've got to be deliberate about building those friendships and relationships. It has to be important to you. You've got to put time into it. Money came up during my time in Texas. Uncle Gary gave to our five-year-old granddaughter, Elena, a $10 bill just because she showed up. And we took Elena with us. And uh, then he gave her a $10 bill for each of her two sisters. Faith, hope, and love are their names. And so when I saw Elena, I said, well, Gary gave you $10, but what do I get? And she said, you get a million-dollar kiss. Now, she came up with that on her own, didn't she, Janet? I don't know how she came up with that million-dollar kiss, but I'm telling you, it's one thing I learned in Texas and relearned, that it really is a million-dollar kiss 
the kiss you get from the people you love. And all the money in the world can't match those relationships that you are cultivating and in which you walk. Behind me, there are some people walking. And one of them is colored in red. That's because that person represents you as a follower of Jesus in your daily walk. In this walk that God has given you, you're in the presence of other people, just like this figure is in the presence of other figures. And Jesus has called you to be his own and to walk in the world in the way that he walked. If you say that you know him, John the Apostle, the beloved Apostle said, then you ought to walk as he walked. And what I'm doing in this series, Protect Your Community Presence, is talking about how you stay true to your call in the daily walk of your life. And I'm going to visit some of the questions that were thrown at Jesus. Some difficult questions that he handled, like the question about divorce. And whose wife will she be on the day of judgment? And a question about taxes that I want us to look at now. It's in Mark chapter 12. Later in this series, I'm going to talk about some of these other hard questions. Today, it's the question about taxes. I thought you would enjoy this since April 17th was tax day, all right? And some of you are delighted and you got refunds and that made you happy. Some of you had to come up with money. I am well aware as I go to this passage in Mark chapter 12 that the question about taxes and relationship to government can get a preacher in trouble. So I want you to pray for me, okay? Don't just be passive in the pew. You pray for your preacher. As we look at this text, which I see as the key statement of the Lord Jesus about the believer's relationship to government. Now, we already went through seven messages on the politics of the passion. So we know that in all aspects of his life, Jesus was touched by the culture and politics of his day. And this is another instance where this happened. And I'm starting with verse 13, Mark chapter 12. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, 
Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Aren't you amazed at him? He's amazing. No man ever spoke like this man. His words challenge us at every turn. And we go from reading the scripture, thinking in our heart, okay, Lord, what does this mean to me? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And I have a few meditations for you today on the text, okay? They're in the way of warnings. Because just as Jesus was here seeking to be trapped by his enemies, so often it happens to us that people are seeking to trip us up as well. So my first thought for you is, watch your step. I nearly stepped on a smoking cigarette while I was in Texas. I was on a golf course about to tee off. And I looked down and here was this smoking cigarette and I almost stepped on it. Then I thought, no, I'm going to hit it with my driver. I needed to warm up anyway. (laughs) So I clobbered it with my driver. And the fellow that teed off came back looking for a cigarette. I said, yikes, I'm sorry. I, I, I just didn't know it was yours. I mean, I just saw it there smoking, and he, he picked it up. It was a little crooked. Took a big draw. thing went back to burning. And he said, this is too expensive not to smoke it down. You never know, you know, what life's going to throw at you. These folks who are coming to Jesus are seeking to catch him. They want to trap him. They want to catch him in his words. It's not just the Pharisees that have come this time. They've also got a group with them called the Herodians, who are mentioned only three times in the Gospels. The Herodians are the Herod party in the first century. Some people think that the Herodians were faithful to the monarchy of Herod the Great and his descendants because they really thought maybe that was the way to get independence from Rome, was to support this monarch who was half Jew and really despised by most of the Jews. But they were in bed with the political powers that be, and they had this combination of religion and politics that was unique to them, they were part of the folks who came to try to trap Jesus. I want you to go away from this passage realizing that evil in your life is not passive, it is active. 
And that the effort to trip you and trap you and catch you is not accidental, but it's purposeful in your life as a follower of Jesus. If somebody notices that you are walking in a different way than the rest of the crowd, it might concern them, alarm them, and disturb them. And for you to to not participate in the way that others do at work or school or in your peer group could cause them to want to trap you too. In fact, if I were to ask for a show of hands, I suspect that there are people in this room who can identify points in your life when people tried to trip you up because you were a follower of Jesus. The scripture says that the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if he can get you, he will. And the more you exemplify the Lord Jesus in your walk, the more actively he wants to bring you down. He was after Jesus, and he's after the followers of Jesus too. So you need to leave this place having been warned that there are efforts to trap you and to compromise your witness that are going on in your world and in your life and that they are happening on purpose and you have a deceiver and an enemy who wants to bring you down. So watch your step and watch your language. They were going to catch Jesus how? They were going to catch him in his words. It was not as if the Herodians and Sadducees who came that day were interested in learning from Jesus. It's not as if these men came to Jesus with this question and were thinking to themselves, maybe Jesus of Nazareth, this itinerant rabbi, can help me handle my relationship to Caesar. Maybe he can teach me something and I can change my behavior after he talks to me. It was not like they were anticipating that they would change their behavior or that they were going to be significantly changed by what he said. His words were the whole point. All they wanted to do was catch him in his words. They wanted him to open up his mouth and utter something in anger or in thoughtlessness that they could use against him to pull down his ministry. They wanted to bring his ministry to an end with the words that he would speak. Now, James says, if you could just control your tongue, you could control your whole body. Your tongue is like a world of iniquity. And he says it's set on fire by the flames of hell. If we could just control what we say, how often do we walk away from an encounter, a meeting, thinking to ourselves, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't said that. So here's the second thought for you, and it's a warning to not only watch your step because evil is active in your world, but 
Watch your words. Pay attention to your words. See, the question about taxes, the Herodians and the Pharisees know there's nothing like a question about Caesar to light the fire and passion of a Jew. They hate being ruled by Rome, this foreign power with its heel upon their neck. They want to be free. They want self-rule. They want self-determination. And they resent Rome. And eventually they will rise up against Rome and there will be a rebellion that will end in the total destruction of Jerusalem and they'll pull the temple down in just a few decades. Oh, these enemies, they know what it is to throw this question out to a passionate Jew. There are some questions in our day that the enemies of faith in Christ might throw out to you at the workplace or in school or in conversation because they want to trip you up too. They want to compromise who you are. They want to light your fire. We get passionate about our politics and our politics and religion. And some of us have a smoldering anger inside of us that burns all the time. And we're upset about it continually. And all anybody has to do is just pull our little chain and we'll just go off. And some of us go off in such a way that pretty soon <laughs> people just want to get away from us. They don't want to hear it anymore. We've already heard it. Because we're so ticked off about the political situation. You say, well, preacher, you don't really appreciate the trouble this country's in. Hey, I've been living here for a long time. But I'd rather be in these United States than under the heel of Rome any day. You think you got it bad? Check out Jesus and the early church and the apostles. You think they're mean to Christians in America? What if you lived in 90 AD when they were trying to systematically eradicate Christians from the face of the earth? It was the government turned against them. They're throwing Jesus a softball. What do you think about Caesar? It's his opportunity to twist off in a political discussion. And he's among Jews. But he's got bigger fish to fry. Think about what's at stake as they throw this. What do you think? Shall we pay taxes to Caesar? Do we need to support this foreign government or not? This, this ungodly fellow in Rome. What do you think? Should we support him? Jesus could launch into an attack on this pagan who sits upon the throne of the world. And people would be in that crowd saying, Amen and applaud. And he would compromise his position as a teacher of the kingdom of God. They were waiting. They were baiting him. Brothers and sisters, you are followers of King Jesus. 
You have citizenship in two worlds. You have citizenship in this world and citizenship in the kingdom of God. And everything you do and everything you say, you must check with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if this is how Jesus responds to the political question of his day, then you need to temper your remarks in such a way that you do not compromise your witness for Jesus Christ in the public square. You protect your community presence by making sure that always in your mind, the highest priority is the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you make sure that you don't get tripped up by people who bait you to say intemperate things. And things that, when they're quoted, sound ungodly or unreasonable or irresponsible. Watch your words as a boss, as a teacher, as a follower of Jesus. Witness the Savior in this very politically charged environment. Now, they are baiting Jesus with flattery. So, I want you to watch your heart too. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. Because you pay no attention to who people are. But you just teach the truth without regard. For people. And it's true that Jesus did not favor the rich over the poor, that he brought the same message to the priest, the peasant, or the king. And he loved them all equally and well. And it startles and amazes us as we encounter Jesus dealing with all the outcasts of the day and how he loved them. It's why, in part, that we love him. And we are astonished by his presence in the world because he has such a wonderful heart toward everybody. He loves the folks that nobody cares about. It was a hallmark of his ministry and his way in the world. But I tell you, these enemies of his, they only half believe this integrity thing. Jesus will say to them, Okay, you, you're saying, I'm a man of integrity. Well, you are hypocrites. You hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Sure, they're hypocrites. We visited the politics of the passion in the last few messages and discovered that they really believed Jesus was a deceiver. This deceiver is going to be Stolen, His body will be stolen by, out of that grave by the disciples and the last deception will be worse than all those before. And they called him a deceiver. And it was a consensus among his enemies, not that he was a man of integrity, but he was a liar and deceiver and a blasphemer. And that's why they hung him up to die. So they come to him with flattery. Oh, you're such a man of integrity. And you may get baited that way too. Say, remember the proverb, faithful 
are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I used that proverb just a couple weeks ago in giving somebody counsel. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, a person who really cares about you, who has your best interest at heart. When I think of that, I think of my mother, right? Maybe you have a mother like that. Other people, they may not be honest, but your mother, she's going to tell you the truth. Why? Because she has your best interest at heart. If she wounds you, it's a faithful wound. But if if your enemies come up to you and say, Oh, you're such a man of integrity. Oh, we admire you. You're no respecter of persons. You know, you treat everybody the same. You always speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. If those are your enemies, watch out. Be careful. Deceitful are the kisses of your enemies. Just as Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, so these Herodians and Pharisees come to Jesus and just lay it on. This long prelude about his character. It's an effort to stir up any pride in him, an intemperate spirit in him, to let him get in himself it's part of the trap to stir up the stuff inside of you that could be there that compromises you when you open your mouth. If you get full of pride and self, think you're so wise, and all of a sudden you're this person of integrity who knows so much, when you open your mouth you can be in trouble. Always speak with humility, like your Savior spoke. Speak the truth, but always speak it in love. Hold your tongue when it is best to do so. Watch your language. Be careful with your words. The same spring does not produce both salt water and fresh water. And if those around you see salt water coming out of your mouth, they will not believe that there's fresh water in there. Protect your community presence by watching your words, watching your heart. Don't get swelled up with pride. And watch your wallet. Knew I was going to get to that, didn't you? All right? Watch your wallet. It's amazing how often Jesus is talking about money. A number of the parables are about money. Just plain old ordinary money. When they ask Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus says what? Show me the money. Show me the money. Well, if I were to pull some money out of my wallet... You would see on there the images and icons of the forefathers of this country. It would not be a euro or a yen that I pulled out of my wallet. It would be U.S. currency. Because wherever you live on this planet, you live in a civil jurisdiction. 
And that civil jurisdiction issues the coin. And Jesus teaches us this, okay? You ready? You owe something to your government. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The idea is that you have a debt to Caesar. He builds roads. He builds bridges. He has an army to keep the peace. Even under the heel of Rome, Jesus could say, you owe government something. So pay your taxes. Brothers and sisters, it is not a good witness for you to refuse to pay your taxes and in a clandestine fashion lie on your 1040 and steal from the government. You may be thinking, well, nobody will see this, but you see it, and you know it, and maybe your family members know it. It is not civil disobedience for you to refuse to pay all your taxes. Civil disobedience is when you stand up and say, Uncle Sam, I believe taxing me is wrong. I'm ready to go to prison for it, but I'm not giving you any money. That's civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is public. And if you, that's your, was that me? I ordered some thunder for effect. All right? <laughs> Let's not lie on our tax forms. Let's give the government what is due them. We drive on the roads. We use the communication system. We're part of the economic system. We're part of the medical system. All these things are in part brought to us by those who govern and by our government. Jesus takes this opportunity not just to tell them what they ought to give to Caesar, but to tell them what they ought to give to God. He asked the question, whose image is on it. And one of our interns reminded me this morning that while the image of Caesar is on the coin, the image of God is on the man. In a way, it's a contrast. Hey, Caesar put, pressed his image on this porter. So give him what's, him, what's due him. But where God put his image? On the human heart. You belong to him. Caesar gets the nickel. God gets the essence of the human being. Very heart. And is satisfied with nothing less from you. I am reminded of Ronnie Floyd's article in this week's Baptist paper here in our state where he said that the average church member gives what percent of their income? Does anybody know? The average church member gives to all charitable causes in a year. What percent? 
2.56. That is sad. Brothers and sisters, we can do better than that. And we must. When we talk about the tithe, we're not talking about something that you, with a generous heart, say, okay, God, I'm going to give you this. The prophet said, the tithe belongs to the Lord. It is his. Why is it his? Abraham tithed before the law. Jesus told the Pharisees, you ought to be tithing, but you also ought to pay attention to the weightier matters of love and justice and truth. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis in the very early chapters all the way to Revelation, the word tithe is used, and it refers to a tenth. One of our men paid the bicyclers in pennies this morning. So he could illustrate to the child what percentage belongs to God. And he pledged, what was it, Richard? Five or ten dollars, something like that. And as he gave it to the child, he broke it open and he said, Now, when you make this many pennies, five of them belong to God. That's the tithe. The early church met together on the first day of the week. And they set aside their gift as God had prospered them. You say, well, what does it mean, as God had prospered them? It means they were giving a proportion of what they made that week. The church of Jesus Christ has for these 2,000 years depended upon those who gather for worship as part of their worship to God, as part of their obedience to God, as part of what they owe to God, something that everybody in the room can do, we give a tenth to the Lord of that which we've earned that week. It is an acknowledgement that He is God, and my hands and my feet and my talent and everything that I have comes from Him. It is an expression of a generous heart. It is also an expression of the ownership of this planet by the God who made it. And it's an act of worship that everybody can do. Maybe you can't sing like Robert. Maybe you don't know how to teach. But everybody in the room, when you make a dollar, can say, this dime belongs to God. There are days when, as a pastor, I look at our giving, and I say to myself, how are we going to feed those people at the Azanamian when we don't have enough money to do all that we envision and feel called to do? We don't want to give up on helping the Hatchels do their work with the Roma people in Europe. We don't want to give up on helping with the work around the world. We want to do both. And sometimes it's hard to conceive how we're going to do it. But every day when I look at it, I know in my heart, if everybody in the room just did what the patriarchs and Moses and Jesus said do, there'd be plenty to care for them feeding of the homeless 
and the little children at risk of hunger and every ministry which we seek to carry forward, there'd be plenty. In fact, if everybody tithes, it'd likely be about four times as much as what we bring in. Think about it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The image of God is upon you. You are His by right of creation. He calls you to Himself. And when we come to the time of response, it's our opportunity to say to the Creator God, Here I am, Lord. All of me given unto you because that's what I owe. Let's bow together. Somebody in this room, you need to give your life to Christ and you've known it for a long time. It is time today, my brother or sister, to say, Lord, here I am. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me and rose again the third day. And I want you in my life. Would you pray that prayer of surrender unto him? Maybe what God is dealing with you about this morning is a private matter. Between you and him. And it involves your wallet. And God is saying to you, you know, things will never be right until you make this right. Lord, we pray today that our response to this teaching of Jesus will honor you and be consistent with him who is our Lord and Savior. In his name, amen.